It's now time for Talkin' Boxing with Billy C. It began as a podcast, went live on the net, and transformed into a full-blown empire. It's the only daily boxing talk show on the planet, hosted by the only guy with the balls to do it. Many have stepped into the ring. Many have tried to take the belt. And one by one, they've fallen. Another victim of the undisputed heavyweight champion of Boxing Talk Radio. Talking Boxing with Billy C is on now. My style is impetuous, my defense is impregnable, and I'm just ferocious, I want your heart. Live from the Billy C. Studios in Lake George, New York. I'm Bill Caliger, and it's time for the Billy C. Show. Good morning, good day, good evening. I hope you're doing okay today. Uh, today's show is being brought to us in part by Sal's Neighborhood Pizzeria and Italian Restaurant, located on beautiful St. Simon's Island in Georgia. Check out the website, www.salsneighborhoodpizzeria.com. Or give my man a call, 912-268-2328. That's 912-268-2328. Find out why I go all the way to St. Simon's to get an authentic Italian meal. Today's show is also being brought to us in part by my book, Tom Molino from Bondage. Here's it. Here it is. Right here. It's, it's right here. Tom Molino from Bondage to Baddest Man on the Planet is available right now where all good books are sold. And you can literally get a copy of it. Right now, while you're watching or listening to the show, just visit uh, barnesandnoble.com or amazon.com. If you're looking to get a signed copy, don't worry about it. Uh, Just go to our website, billycboxing.com, and click on the book. You can't miss it. It's all over the screen. Don't forget to uh, write down what what you want uh, me to put if you get that. We have uh, plenty of books. The shipment came in a couple weeks ago. We got caught up with everybody, so... uh, You've been waiting. Now's the time. And, by the way, it's not too early to order uh, Christmas presents. And the book fits right in the stocking, by the way. Uh, Coming up a little bit later on the show, we have uh, an author of a new trilogy that's out on uh, former manager and promoter Jack Hurley. Uh, The author John Oakes will be joining us uh, in about uh, an hour or so. So we'll get uh, his take on that. Uh, why he wrote it, all that happy stuff. Uh, great trilogy, I recommend. Uh, also, uh, what we want to talk about today is uh, yesterday uh, we lost a, a boxing icon. Um, Jake LaMotta passed away at 95 years old. And um, this was a guy that uh, I, he made a huge impact on the sport of boxing during his time and even to this day, and and I think that his blueprint on the sport of boxing uh, will be forever uh, something that uh, we talk about uh, for uh, for generations to come. Uh, his uh, life was uh, uh, more immortalized uh, on the movie uh, that uh, won all kind of awards, Raging Bull, uh, and uh, I think everybody uh, heard of Jake LaMotta because of the success of that movie. Uh, the beauty of Jake LaMotta, at least as far as I'm concerned, is I got to meet him several times, 
and he was a character. And and although he was ninety five, I, I really was shocked that he passed. I you know, um, I always uh, kid around. Uh, the older you get, you hear somebody uh, pass away at an old age, uh, you know, and you say ninety five. Oh, geez, he was so young. He had his whole life ahead of him. Uh, but I honestly. I honestly was caught off guard. Uh, I had no idea he was he was uh, ill, uh, which I still didn't think that he was ill. Um, but uh, he lived a full life. Joining me right now with his thoughts on Jake LaMotta is uh, my uh, partner in crime, uh, Sal Rocky Senecola. And I know, Sal, it impacted you because uh, as soon as the word got out, uh, you reached out to me. And uh, Jake LaMotta was was a, a character in and out of the ring. What's your thoughts on him? Well, he you know, he was a very special, very unique guy. And, uh, you know, he was a neighborhood young man and uh, uh, drummed, uh, marched to his own drumbeat, really. I mean, uh, the movie did portray a lot of what his life was about. And I, I had numerous uh, meetings with Jake. And uh, but one of the first times that I met him, and it, it was stellar. Um, my good friend, our good friend, and uh, he, he should have been my manager. And uh, but that's another story for another day. Al Cerdo, Al Cerdo, who was the tailor from Secaucus, New Jersey, who managed Buddy McGirt, uh, uh, multiple fighters, uh, inherited Customados uh, fighters, and things like this. Uh, Al was a great guy, and he was a good friend. And this is when we were talking about my joining his stable and, and him managing me. He invited me to a lunch in Brooklyn uh, where um, he was uh, having to have a press conference with uh, the likes of Jake LaMotta, Rocky Graziano, who I've known uh, by that time already, and uh, Joey Giardello and a couple of other guys. But I'm telling you this. He invited me, in a, along with another uh, a newscaster from uh, the tri-state area, and I spent four hours in the afternoon at uh, this restaurant interacting and just listening to Jake LaMotta, Rocky Graziano, and Joey Giardillo. In fact, there, there was one point that these guys, the, the, the stories that they would try to compete and tell and best each other in, it was just it was just such an entertaining, I, I felt, wow, I'm amongst the legends, boxing legends, people that I was sitting with that, 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 that gave me the inspiration to become a fighter. Uh, and uh, it was just, it was like so surreal. It was great. And uh, Al Serta would chime in every once in a while and say, guys, listen to the three of you talk amongst yourselves. Like, listen to... Uh, I need an interpreter. You know, it's, it's so funny. Um, but Jake was. He was a high-spirited guy. He was a no-nonsense business guy. He took the fight game serious. He was a warrior. He had heart. He had passion. And he felt he could go in a ring and destroy anybody. But he was never, never afraid to stand in a ring with the very best of the best because that's what he felt he was capable of doing. He walked in a ring. How many times did he fight Sugar Ray Robinson? Six times? Six times. And he beat him maybe one out of those six times. But this guy, he just had the heart of a lion, the desire to win, to be champ, to be the best. And he didn't care who he fought, what he fought him. And this is what boxing, this is what he personified. This is what the whole legend of, of what the essence of pure fighting and boxing was all about. To challenge oneself, to rise to the occasion, to get in there under all circumstances. This was during an era where, you know, 
If you have a bad haircut today, they'll, they'll cancel a fight. This is during the area when, when you go into the ring, you were injured from sparring from the other fight. You fought every couple of weeks, every month, whatever the heck, and you didn't care. You went in there because you needed the money. You wanted to move up through the rankings. You knew to stay busy. And that's how it was done. And you were ready to put your blood on that canvas in order to have a victory. And that's the kind of champion, that's the kind of fire, that's the kind of what it took to, to rise the occasion and gave boxing its legacy today. Um, Jake LaMotta was born uh, Giacobbe LaMotta uh, in 1922, uh, July 10th, 1922. Uh, died uh, yesterday at the age of 95. When you take a look at Jake LaMotta's uh, career, uh, you know, he started uh, boxing in 1941 and similar to today uh he moved up uh, uh, moved up in the ranks um uh, you know with the right opponents i mean this guy had a, a big following uh he fought during an era where they utilized um you know uh, rivalries and and uh, you know town versus town city versus city italians against the irish or the jews against the italians i mean that's how fights were built and jake lamata uh, made his start during that era uh his first uh, big fight against a known uh quality fighter was uh in 1942 may 12 1942 against jose basora and uh he uh got his first draw uh first of four in that fight uh would go on to fight a, a couple of more fights including a rematch with Pesora in which he lost uh and then all of a sudden in 1942 uh later on i mean this is how often they fought that first fight i told you in the draw was may of 42 uh five months later and he had uh uh you know six fights so uh, his seventh fight in five months who does he step in the ring with uh, none other than uh, Sugar Ray Robinson uh, and loses the first of, uh, like Sal alluded to, six fights in which he loses a, a decision. Uh, he would go on to uh, get wins against Fritzy Zivic, Jose Basora, uh, Tommy Bell. Uh, he had uh, Holman Williams, Tony Gennaro, uh, Tommy Yarowitz, Vill uh, Robert Villanuman, Marcel Serdan when he won the title in 1949, um, Tiberio Mitri. Uh, he had a loss against Billy Fox and also Lloyd Marshall, uh, Hall of Famers. He fought uh, Sugar Ray Robinson six times. Sugar Ray Robinson regarded, at least uh, in my opinion, as the greatest fighter of all times. Fought him six times. Uh, the first time in 1942, like I said, he lost. Uh, he won the second fight, which uh, took place in 1943, handing uh, Sugar Ray Robinson his very first loss of his career. Right. He would go on and fight him again that year and lose uh, in uh, a couple of weeks later uh, on uh, uh, February 26th. He fought him twice in 1945, losing both times. And then his last time was uh, depicted in the uh, uh, movie uh, Raging Bull in 1951, where he uh, could not knock, when Sugar Ray Robinson couldn't knock him off his feet. The referee did wave off the fight, and he did lose uh, by a uh, stoppage, but it was a TKO stoppage uh, against Sugar Ray uh, Robinson. Uh, he fought all the way until 1954. Um, his uh, uh, last fight, like I said, with uh, Sugar Ray Robinson was 19. Uh, 51 
Um, he beat, uh, in 1950, he beat Tiberio Mitri, which was a meaningful fight. And his last big fight was against Bob Murphy in 1952. Uh, he did lose his last fight against uh, Billy Kilgore, and uh, he retired uh, from boxing after that. But he never really left the sport of boxing because he was uh, an important fixture uh, at uh, major boxing events. And like Sal said, he was a, a major character. Um, I think boxing needs uh, characters like Jake LaMotta, and it's something we haven't seen in a long time. Uh, what's your thoughts on that, Sal? I mean, you know, how would a Jake LaMotta, uh, with his attitude, uh, his pers personality, his style of fighting, how would it fare today? And do you think, like myself, that we need uh, characters like that in boxing so fans can relate to them in one way or another? Or has that style of life just left us uh, entirely? You know, the, the playing field and the canvas of where we are in the fight game today is in such contrast. I mean, even in the 70s and 80s, we had some boxing personalities, and that's what grabbed the fans. And like I said, Billy, we debate this all the time, and Dax hinted to it, one of the things I used to always say. It's not that boxing has died in the United States. It's just that now it's on a world stage. I mean, we have champions in every country that that you, you, we, we can't even recall their names sometimes. Yeah, but um, it was always on a world stage. You know, when Dax well, said I, that— It's always on a world stage. I mean, yes, yeah. What I'm saying is, what I'm saying is that our shrinkage or dissipating— a style or attention and fighters with those personalities. See, back in the 50s, 60s, 40s, 60s, and maybe 70s, you can go afar, maybe even 80s, you had fighters that were champions, that had a story, that had a personality, that had something that wasn't just getting in trouble, going to jail and beating up a woman or something like that. It wasn't negative. There was some things that they were gripping and they were adding to their persona as far as not only being a fighter, but they were being a uh, a uh, a humanitarian or or just a big personality with a with a with a joke or or with something to say. Uh, look at what we did with, with Muhammad Ali. Anything that was said or anything that he did, it was in the forefront of the news because everybody wanted to see what he had to say or what he was doing or what he was involved with. Well, that's what happened back with the Rocky Graziano days, the Jake LaMotta days, the Sugar Ray Robinson days. These guys were personalities that were identifiable throughout the world. And they were bigger than life because they're like little local heroes. But they, they continued, as you suggested, after they retired. They stuck around the boxing game. They were celebrated heroes announced in the ring, which they barely do anymore. Um uh, they took the time. These guys would, would, would shake hands with all the fans that coming to see the present-day fighter while they were talking about the glory days that they had. They made boxing. They were an advertisement for boxing. They were part of the fixture of what boxing was all about. They were a family. They were a community. They were the essence of what boxing represented on a world stage from what they could do domestically to the fan base. And that, that, that's gone. That's gone. Yeah, no, I... You know, what, what I meant was, I think, you know, Dax has said that a couple of times. What he meant, I think, and I hope, is that we're, we have access to fighters yes. worldwide now because of technology yes. and stuff. But boxing has always been a global sport. Even though yes. the United States got most of the press during the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and even 70s, 
you know, boxing originated, well, I mean, it originated in, in, in the Greek times, but modern boxing yeah. as we know it originated in England. Um, you know, as you know, my guy, uh, Tom Molino, fought uh, in England uh, 100 years after they started, but, uh, you know, it was, it was more prominent uh, overseas until uh, the Civil War, actually, uh, in the United States when, <laughs> I, I, we're off track here, but the funny thing is the reason why boxing started becoming a little more organized in the United States after the Civil War. Yes, there were plenty of fights prior to the Civil War, but it became more organized. And the main reason was for fitness. Um, you know, at that time, we started us, meaning the United States started um, being concerned with fitness and, you know, bare knuckle boxing uh, started to, to take hold uh, in the United States. Uh, as far as Jake LaMotta, getting back to Jake LaMotta, um, he won the world title against uh, Marcel Sordan, and I, you know, I, which was a French fighter, and they were going to have a rematch. Uh, and then uh, Marcel Sordan actually uh, uh, got killed in a plane crash uh, on his way back to New York for the press conference to announce the rematch uh, against uh, Jake LaMotta. So uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, Marcel Sordan never got that rematch. And the way they showed a little connection, I've told this story before, um, but a little connection that we have here with the show with Jake LaMotta and Marcel Sardin, in a sense, um, in the movie uh, Raging Bull, there's a scene where Marcel Sardin, what happened was he kind of got knocked to the canvas during the fight and separated his shoulder and wasn't able to continue, which gave, uh, which gave, uh, uh, Jake LaMotta, the, the, the win uh, after nine rounds. And in the movie, they were trying to get that, um, that, that, that fall just right. And the guy that was playing that role, the guy who was playing Marcel Sardin in the movie Raging Bull, uh, was an undefeated up-and-coming welterweight out of New York City at the time. Uh, I forget his first name, but his last name was Raftis. And um, he, they kept doing take after take after take. And finally, when they said that's the one that landed in the movie, uh, this guy actually ruined his shoulder and never was able to box again. The connection wow. that we have with uh, Mr. Raftis is that his son, Eli Raftis, was the guy who did all of our T-shirts for, for this show. Uh, for years and years. Now he's uh, working with the Orange County Choppers, but uh, uh, Eli Raftis, give a shout out to my man Eli. But I always thought that that was a, a, a great uh, story because uh, yes. I think, uh, who was it? Uh, Scorsese did that uh, yes, movie? Yes, Scorsese, yeah, of so, course. You know, yes. he, he was trying to, get it, uh, trying to get it perfect, and as uh, fate would have it, not only did he get wow. it perfect, uh, he ruined the, the career of uh, uh, Eli's pops, but... Uh, uh, in any event, the rematch never took place. And uh, they also, uh, a fight that, uh, you know, they really, really wanted to make and never took place was Jake LaMotta against Rocky Graziano. Yes, another, which another I was going to get to. Go ahead. Yeah, another fight that they wanted to, to make that never took place due to injuries and scheduling and one thing led to another and both of the fighters went uh, their separate ways. But aside from that, Jake LaMotta pretty much fought uh, fought everybody that was available to him uh, and, and the other misconception about Jake LaMotta, 
and you can you know pick that uh, misconception misconception up by watching the movie is that he really wasn't known as a power puncher. I mean, yeah. the guy out of a uh, uh, hundred and six fights. He, he only had 30 knockouts. He had less than a 30% knockout ratio, which is I've always found fascinating because when I think of Jake LaMotta, I think of a, a raging bull. I think of a guy that worked the body and, and viciously uh, attacked his opponents. But when you look at the, the true statistics, he didn't have that many knockouts, Sal. No, he had a swarming style, uh, probably similar to mine, but I mean, uh, or mine similar to his, trying to emulate him. He was just a whirlwind. I mean, the guy was in shape. He was conditioned. He would come at you, and he would wear you down. It would be like trying to go through a gauntlet, and everywhere you turn, you'd see punches coming at you. And you'd try, you know, can, can you imagine uh, being, a, being a fighter in the ring, hitting Jake LaMotta with the best shot you have, and this guy keeps coming at you with this swarm of punches that's going to catch you eventually in one angle or another? No, he had conditioning. He had heart. He had a, uh, an arsenal that, that he, he tried to deliver at all times. And you know what? He was do a very effective on a lot of levels with just getting those victories by wearing your opponent down and having you uh, succumb to just losing the rounds. And his punches were, you know, they didn't have punch stat back then, but uh, CompuBox. But I am sure with the swarm and battery of punches that he would overwhelm his opponents with, you know, that's how he won a lot of those fights. And uh, Jake, Jake was a legend. And let's face it, I mean, I'm, I, I, I love the guy. And I, I know he's got fans throughout the world that uh, that really – especially after that movie, bit down and wanted to learn more about this unique human being who, who, like I said, he fought and he went through a lot of adversity like most fighters do, like most people do. We, we face it every day. But um, he used his world stage and his canvas in a boxing ring, and that's how he uh, set an example and what he wanted to paint as a story of his life. And that's beautiful, beautiful legacy. Hey, listen, we're going to take a short break. When I come back, I'm going to give some final thoughts on uh, the late, great Jake LaMotta. Uh, so uh, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Check out BillyCBoxing.com now or feel the wrath of the mighty mustache. Oh, that hurts. Why are you doing that to my face? I hate you. I hate you. That's BillyCBoxing.com. Consider this your warning. Now back to Billy C. Interact with the show at BillyCBoxing.com. And we're back. You're watching and listening to the Billy C. Show. Glad you could be here. And uh, we're remembering uh, Jake LaMotta here at the first part uh, of our show. Uh, coming up in a little bit, we have the uh, author scheduled to join us, uh, John Oaks, of a new trilogy uh, written uh, about the uh, late uh, promoter who had a really long career as a manager and promoter, Jack Hurley. So uh, stay tuned for that. But, uh, you know, the thing about Jake LaMotta is that, you know, especially today, Sal, we got all of this concern of, uh, you know, injury and safety first and nobody wants to get hit, nobody wants to fight anybody. And Jake LaMotta defied all those odds. I mean, his style of fighting, I mean, you know, you could say what you want, but he wasn't exactly a defensive fighter. Took a lot of shots, took a lot of punishment, 
uh, prided himself on staying, uh, you know, standing up straight. Uh, and, you know, to his dying day, had all of his faculties. Uh, like I said in the opening of the show, I, I was I was kind of surprised that he even passed because, you know, he, he was healthy, you know. I mean, for a 95-year-old guy, he was in great shape. Last time I saw him at the uh, Hall of Fame, uh, known for wearing his cowboy hat all the time and uh, uh, being That's funny, right. quick with the jokes, uh, always had a... Uh, uh, a beautiful woman on his arm and he still did time. you know uh he had i don't know his 20th wife or something like that but uh jake lamada uh was uh the exception to the rule when it comes to uh, just, uh getting any kind of uh uh injuries that would haunt him for the rest of his life because he certainly lived a full life didn't he he did and you know it's so funny he was a, a, a personality. I mean, he, he, one of his favorite jokes, I mean, he would tell people was, yeah, I fought Sugar Ray Leonard so many times, I, I, I had diabetes. Or I'd get, um, it's amazing I didn't have diabetes, you know, Sugar Ray, you know, that was the whole joke. I mean, he just had off-the-cuff things he would comment and say, but never was it out of any disrespect to anything. He was just always uh, using some witty sarcasm. Yeah, he had all his faculties. And, and, you know, that was part of it. I mean, this guy challenged himself. He didn't care. There was no safety first with Jake. It was either, hey, I'm going to get, you're going to have to kill me to beat me, or I'm going to beat you. That's it. And he went in with that attitude. Was he always 100% when he stepped in the ring? No. I mean, these guys fought every couple of weeks when they were in their era. And, you know, they had injuries here, they had injuries there. It didn't stop them. They wanted to just hone in and do their craft. And, and give the fans what they wanted, but they wanted to move up and leverage themselves because they wanted the money, they wanted the fame, they wanted the titles. And that's what they fought for. They didn't care who re whose record was this. They weren't worried about their O. They were worried about giving it their all and their best to be the best, and that's what they did, and that was Jake. That's true. Great, uh, great put greatly, I should say. I was stumbling around the words. Uh, Jake, Jake hey, slapping know, me around. You. But, yeah, but but as you said, Billy, yeah, here's a guy. He he didn't worry about injuries. He didn't worry about what was going to happen 30 years or 20 years from him when he retired. Of course, because a lot of it wasn't known, the effects of, of all that. We we used to joke around, and even my father would, would say, hey, Sav, you, you continue with this boxing. You know, Maybe one day your friends are going to make you a little fun and call you a little punchy if you get you know. I, we, we didn't know what it really w was all about until – of course, modern medicine had actually uh, come up with their own uh, diagnosis or own uh, uh, declaration of, hey, this is what this is caused by, and this is how it happens, and this is what it's going to do. But I still think that there are certain people that are predestined or predetermined to have more of a ability to to stave off this kind of injury or this kind of thing because they're just built differently. And Jake LaMotta, if that case was ever to be true or ever to be used as an example, Jake LaMotta could personify that whole thing and a whole concept as an example because this guy had all his faculties. Uh, I don't think his body was shutting down in any way, shape, or form from all those blows like it happens to so many other fighters. Uh, and, and he was quick-witted. He was always there. He was able to walk. He was able to do things. And here's a 95-year-old man who had a lifetime of memories and a legacy to pass on. And you know, I, I think he even outlived many of his young wives and, and, and even some of his children or so. But uh, um, God bless and God rest Jake LaMotta, who uh, went down for the final count. And uh, I'll tell you, he left a legendary story behind there oh, for all of us to continue to talk about. You know, uh, the misconception from people 
uh, fighters become all fighters become punch drunk or or now you know with the uh, Parkinson's disease that Muhammad Ali suffered every uh, you know how many times do people tell me it's because of boxing and everything else and and that's not true what what we've learned is that you know anybody could come down with with a disease like Parkinson Michael J Fox is a good example Yes. Um, never uh, took a shot to the head, never fought or anything like that. Um, what they do know is that in cases like Muhammad Ali, that blows to the head, unnecessary blows to the head, and it could have been a football player or, or you know, another contact-type sport, uh, would uh, uh, speed up the possibility of getting that. So, in other words, if you were going to get Parkinson anyway, Parkinson's disease anyway, uh, and if you chose to become a professional fighter, it might expedite um, that disease for you. And, and that's kind of what um, some studies have suggested about Muhammad Ali. Well, Jake LaMotta, with the shots that he took, um, I think is, is the other side of the evidence that it's not always true, you know, and, and it boils down to, to the genes. And uh, Jake LaMotta certainly was uh, the exception uh, to that rule. And, um, you know, never changed his style uh, in or out of the ring. I mean, uh, you know, we're talking here in the chat room. uh, And, you know, the truth of the matter is is Jake LaMotta had a little nasty side to him, too. Yes, he did. I didn't mention that. And sometimes, (laughs) uh, sometimes, you know, he he didn't want to give fans uh, an autograph or or the time of day. And sometimes he did. You know, it, it wasn't because he... It wasn't that he was, you know, uh, against the sport. It was just that was his personality. Everybody knows, you know, he's a little violent uh, when it came to uh, the females, you know. But uh, it is what it is. And Jake LaMotta was always Jake LaMotta. The thing that I respect the most about Jake LaMotta is that he never tried to pretend he was somebody else. He didn't try to to, to put on a, a facade or, or a smoke screen and, and uh, you know, try to you know, tell somebody uh, it was raining when the sun was out, you know. Uh, I, I mean, it, he just, he, he was Jake LaMotta, and you either accepted him or you didn't. There was no in-between, and I think that that's what I respect the most about Jake LaMotta, aside from his accomplishments in the ring. Like I said in the opening, Jake LaMotta had a personality that um, was bigger than life, and, and, and it was important to the sport of boxing, and we don't have it anymore. Um, we don't have, not only do, don't we have Jake LaMotta, but we don't have those personalities anymore. You know, Jake LaMotta was a genuine guy. You know, you got, you saw what you got. E- even when he was involved in, in the hearings and everything else, I mean, he was still Jake LaMotta. You know, uh, today in press conferences or, or, or uh, you know, prelim uh, for, for a, uh, you know, promotion of a fight or whatever, you, you hear these fighters, oh, I'm going to do this, oh, I'm going to do that, you know, and they're, they're acting because that's what they're doing. They're acting. They're trying to, to be something they're not. You never got that with Jake LaMotta. Jake LaMotta was Jake LaMotta all the time, good or bad. Hey, I'm Jake LaMotta. Take it or leave it. And, and I, you know, anybody in life that is just themselves and doesn't care what anybody else thinks, I respect. Because uh, I think that that's important. And, uh, you know, the one thing I wish that we did have today in the sport of boxing is more um, characters and personalities, genuine characters, genuine personalities uh, that we don't have anymore. Jake LaMotta wasn't the only one during his era. There were a lot of them. 
and uh, the sport misses it. And uh, I'm certainly going to miss Jake LaMotta. And and like I said, Sal, I was shocked to hear it. Um, even though he's 95, I, I mean, I was kidding before. I said 95. Oh, geez, he had his whole life in front of him. But I, I, I still was was caught off guard, you know. And and anybody, even if if a loved one is is battling an illness, and and you know it's inevitable that that the time is going to come and and the days are numbered. When it happens, you you're still kind of caught off guard. But Jake Lamada, I was totally caught off guard. I, I saw the clip. And then I was like, "What? What happened?" You know, and I, and I had a, I had a look at it a, again. I was uh, I was shocked, and uh, I, I certainly uh, feel a void today as a result of it. Yeah, and, and you know, it, it's it stunned me because, like I said, I was just catching up watching Fox News, and Flash came across, and I immediately sent you that text, and uh, you know, I was I was I was like, "Wow!" Because as you suggested. You take for granted, I, I, I guess. You know, he was a figure that was always around. I have a picture of him and I and, and a couple of pictures at that luncheon I talked about with Al Cerdo and Rocky Graziano and Joey Giardello and a couple of other guys. And, in fact, along with the Syrian buzzsaw, um, uh, who was preparing for a rematch with Marvin Hagler, um, we um, – we were all standing there, and we all took for granted because I would say, "Hey, there's a picture of Jake, there's this, that, and everything else." And we would talk about Jake all the time, and it was like a common, you know, thing that we would talk about: Graziano, Jake Lamada, because these guys had that kind of legacy that people would remember, people would talk about. So when it actually came across yesterday, I was like, "Oh wow, he's really gone, one of the last of the greats," you know, that 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 we can recall and talk about. And that's exactly how uh, how it, it, it hit me. Yeah, no, it's uh, he'll solely be missed, and boxing lost a, a cherished piece of history. And I hope the younger generations don't forget him. Jake Lamada uh, died yesterday at 95 years old. He had a career record of 83 wins, 30 of them coming by knockout. He did lose 19 times, in which he was only technically stopped four times, um, uh, never uh, uh, knocked out. Uh, retired in never, the corner, never. was waved off a couple of times. He did have four draws, a total of 106 fights, 869 rounds this guy fought during his career, uh, which uh, started in 1941 and went all the way to 1954. He was a former world middleweight champion, and he was inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame in 1990. Jake LaMotta, rest in peace. Uh, you will solely be missed. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we got some more news to talk about. Uh, so uh, don't go nowhere. Billy C will be right back. Check out BillyCBoxing.com now, or feel the wrath of the mighty mustache. Oh, that hurts! Why are you doing that to my face? I hate you. I hate you. That's BillyCBoxing.com. Consider this your warning. Now back to Billy C. Interact with the show at BillyCBoxing.com. And we're back. You're watching and listening to the Billy C. Show. Glad you could be with us. And uh, coming up a little bit, we're supposed to, uh, we're scheduled to have uh, author of a new trilogy, John Oaks on, uh, wrote a trilogy on... uh, former manager and promoter Jack Hurley, 60 years into the sport. Uh, so uh, looking forward to that. 
I'm here with uh, my man uh, Sal Rocky Senecola. And Sal, um, you you know what I always say, right? I don't want to make excuses, but right, but right. So but. Uh, we got one. We got one coming the up. But yeah, Can- Canelo. We got a big but Can- yeah, yeah. Um, it's been reported from several uh, uh, sources that uh, Saul Canelo Alvarez doesn't want to make any excuses, but. but. But, but he uh, is claiming that he had injured his right hand in training camp, did oh, not tell oh. anyone, and uh, went into that fight at uh, not 100% uh, to fight Triple G. Oh. Uh, we all know uh, the, what happened there. Uh, one judge scored it 116. One, uh, I'm sorry. One judge scored it 115, 113. Uh, one had it even. Uh, and uh, then we had the uh, uh, Adelie Bird uh, card of 118-110, which caused uh, all kinds of uh, outrage. And like I said with Larry on, on the show yesterday, if that card uh, even scored for Canelo was more in line with the others, I don't think anybody would have gotten so much, uh, you know, so so uh, uh, uptight about it. But for me to hear uh, documentation now, written uh, documentation that, uh, Canelo uh, suffered his, uh, an injury to his right hand, and as a result, uh, went with uh, uh, the glove brand winning gloves uh, instead of uh, uh, his preferred brand, which he usually uses the Everlast uh, MX uh, uh, series. Uh, and the reason he claims he went with winning gloves uh, was because that particular manufacturer has more padding in the glove he wanted more protection on his hand and uh most people did notice that he was using those gloves uh and they also uh, relate that the the fact that a lot of fighters use the winning gloves brand in sparring because of the padding and it did raise some eyebrows that he wore them in the ring um but uh you know I, the truth of the matter is is you know it I, I find it hard to believe, Sal. And the reason why is because if you are going to have an injury, if you have an injury and you're in a fight similar to this, and, and I've used the example of, uh, of the fight that took place between Manny Pacquiao and Floyd Mayweather, the biggest uh, fight of Manny's career, and then he claims he, he hurt his shoulder after the fight. You know, if you're in that kind of a fight, and it's the biggest fight of your career, regardless of the repercussions. You know, uh, fans upset, uh, you know, rescheduling a fight, et cetera, et cetera. Regardless, don't you have to go into that fight 100%? Don't you owe it to the fans, even yourself, to be able to, to, to give it 100%? Or is this just total bullshit? Is, is this just a case where... Um, you know, I, the guy is having a hard time accepting that he didn't win. I mean, what, what's your thoughts on this report? Billy, I'll tell you, and I, I could just recall or relate how many times I went in a ring, not 100%, because I had an injured hand, because uh, uh, I had sh- uh, a, a sore knee or a shin splint or whatever it was. And you, you couldn't cancel a fight for things like that, unless it was a broken hand, unless it was this. And you know what? I didn't look for the butt. I, I didn't look for this. And yes, even though I would watch what I'm going to say, because this is what a fighter does. They may not enter the ring 
at all times, 100%. But when they enter the ring, even at 90%, they're going to give their 100%. And I think that uh, if this was the case, and if he had a hand injury, depending on the severity of it, I mean, there's all levels of hand injuries. I mean, there's where it's throbbing and you 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 hit, you can't even use it. I think if it was along that line uh, or if it was a bone spur or anything else or just a bone bruise, there is something you, you can't just say, hey, guess what? I'm going to go through this fight. No, because it, it, it is throbbing, it hurts, and there is a level of, of, of what you can only get done with an injured hand. Um, I don't think it was that as severe for Canelo Alvarez to enter a ring like that because I think he would have mentioned it earlier if it was. But being preventive and trying to look for another pair of gloves, it's like when I fought that guy Dixon down in Tennessee. Um, I had an injured hand. When they, they tried to give me soaking wet 12-ounce gloves, I knew that that soaking wet 12-ounce glove was at least going to cushion my hand. And I couldn't believe it. I said They said they had no other gloves. I said, well, let me get the ones he's wearing. And he had 8-ounce beautiful brand-new gloves. I mean, these were storm barners, and these are the things, you you know, you're in the middle of the ring getting gloved up. What are you going to do? I said, ah, the hell with it. You know, I got an injured hand anyway. I'll use the 12-ounce. And, and then when I didn't knock him out, I didn't say but, but it was, uh, it was a condition. The fight game is interesting because you're faced with so many different things at so many different levels. If he knew that he had a, a severe injury to his hand that was going to damper or hamper his performance, yeah, he should have made a comment or he should have made made it known. Uh, the truth of the matter is um, that but after the fact, if it was that bad, he should have just shut up and not even let anybody know there was a but. And uh, and that was it. You know, the, 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 the thing is, nobody likes injuries. We talk about it on the no. show. We talk about, oh, is it a real injury? Is it not? You know, but on the other side of the coin, I really think that you know, boxing fans want to see a fighter at their best, especially yes, especially in fights of this magnitude, you know? And and I, it is what it is. You know, Triple G won the fight. The rematch, if it takes place, is, is going to happen uh, in May. I don't like that. If I'm Triple G's team, I want that fight sooner. They've already accepted it. Uh, the deal, I guess, most of it was already in place. Uh, now it, they're just deciding if, if Canelo wants it. I, I think that Triple G's team wants it signed, sealed, and delivered ASAP. And uh, if Canelo drags his feet, if I'm Triple G, I go to Billy C's plan. I go after Billy Joe Saunders, forget Cotto, and uh, hang him up. But uh, another uh, another bit of news. You know, I love the World Boxing Super Series. I, I love the fact that well, I specifically love the fact that it's dealing with the cruiserweight division because it's one of my favorite. It, it, it it's one of my favorite divisions. Top, I, I love heavyweight division, middleweight division, and cruiserweight division. I mean, the middle, the welterweight division is good too. But um, I, I like the cruiserweight division because it it has a potential. The division has a potential of really giving us a lot of action, and it's basically the heavyweights of yesteryear. And for some reason, here in the states. It just doesn't have the the interest level or popularity as it does outside the U.S. Um, but w- what makes it kind of bittersweet? Uh, the the World Boxing Super Series is showcasing all the best cruiserweights uh, in their series, and 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 most of them have titles as it is. Um, this weekend, the current WBA World uh, Cruiserweight Champion is uh, Unier Dorticos, 
and he's taking on Dmitry Kutuzov uh, in uh, in a showdown that's taking place in Texas uh, at the Alamo Dome in San Antonio. And there's no television for this fight. There's no U.S. television, which is absurd. Um, you can't, and you guys never hear me promote other networks or websites or anything like that unless they pay us, you know, on this show. But I am going to promote where you can watch this fight. Um, you can watch this fight as a stream on uh, worldboxingsuperseries.com. Now, I don't know if they're charging for it or not, but this is a TV-worthy fight 100%, and I recommend that you watch it. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, uh, let me know uh, what you think. We'll be talking more about uh, this fight uh, tomorrow. Now, some other fights that have taken place this weekend as well. Uh, WBO World Champions uh, Oscar Valdez and Gilberto Ramirez are uh, going to be fighting this weekend on HBO. Uh, Jesse uh, Hart uh, is uh, uh, going to be on that card uh, as well uh, as he fights uh, Ramirez. And Oscar Valdez is fighting uh, uh, Genesis uh, Cervania, which both are, are going to be pretty good uh, cards, uh, uh, pretty good fights, Al. Uh, that's for sure. But uh, uh, we got a couple of emails, so I want to uh, get started with that. First one is uh, from my man, Jesse. He's actually got two, and you're going to like this uh, second one I just glanced through uh, during the break. But uh, Jesse's first one says, I read that Jake LaMotta passed away yesterday. It's hard to believe a legend like him was still alive. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what he meant to the sport and the person he was? Well, we already did that, uh, Jesse, so I'm sure you got uh, enough on uh, Jake LaMotta uh, from Sal and myself uh, a little bit earlier in the show. He says, how do you see Mario uh, Barrios's progression? Is he learning how to box properly or is he still does he still need a lot of work? I think he should leave Hunter and go somewhere else. I, you guys all know how I feel about Virgil Hunter. He's, uh, he, he's not a good trainer. I don't know why everybody thinks this guy's a good trainer. But with that said, uh, I think Mario Barrios is one of these young fighters that has it. You know how we're saying, ah, sometimes a fighter, he just doesn't have it. You know, well, what exactly is it? You know, well, Mario <laughs> Barrios it? has it. He's been moved along correctly. They have increased his level of opposition uh, fight after fight. He's on the cusp of becoming a superstar. Um, I, I am not a big fan of Virgil Hunter. I think he is the, probably... The most overrated trainer, aside from today's version of Freddie Roach. Uh, but uh, but have you had a chance to uh, watch uh, uh, Mario Barrios fight, Sal? And, and do you think that they're moving him along correctly? Well, from what I hear about his career, yeah, they're progressing him along pretty well. And uh, I haven't had a chance to watch him fight. I will do so because I'd like to see his style. And I'm glad, you know, especially if he has what they call that it factor. That's great because... I just, I just don't want to know what the definition of is is. Yeah, well, it is what it is. Okay. Um, uh, he says, "How do you rate?" Uh, yeah, I got you. He says, "How do you rate the Ramirez versus Hart and Valdez versus uh, Genesis uh, fights? Genesis fights are they uh, made styles to be entertaining?" Um, yeah, I, I do think that it's going to be entertaining. I. I you know, this falls into what we say about all these sanctioning bodies because 
the justification for these fights are the, you know, first of all, you got two young champions. Valdez is, is a quality fighter, and, and so is uh, Ramirez. Um, and I, I think that they both got opportunities because of the plethora of, of belts available. And then when you look at their opponents, their opponents have worked their way up in contention in that sanctioning body. So from that standpoint, if you separate every single sanctioning body and every fighter that's a contender in those sanctioning bodies, they're all these both of these fights are significant. The problem with that is you don't necessarily see the best contenders fighting the best champions. You know, are these guys, if we only had one sanctioning body, are both Ramirez and Valdez, are they champions? You know, are they real champions or are they contenders? Of course, they're real champions based on today's standards, but it always makes you wonder. And then you can't blame a fighter for fighting a a fight when their their sanctioning body that they have a belt to is ordering them to fight the guy that has earned that based on their own rankings and the rest of the boxing public's like well you know who's this guy you know why is he fighting this guy you know it comes out of nowhere you know that's the problem that's the the problem of the politics of the sports Sal. what do you think well we know that i mean it's happened i mean that was the whole problem back and i and i hate to bring it up and stop me uh if you would like but uh you know, that was the whole thing, the fishy business between when Ray Boom Boom Mancini fought Dooku Kim. All of a sudden, you know, this this guy, this fighter for Korean from Korea popped up as the number one ranked contender in the world and uh, out of nowhere and uh, not known to, to many people in the fight game. And all of a sudden he was fighting Boom Boom Mancini for the championship of the world. Uh, this has been going on. This happens. There's a lot of ways to get your fighter up there other than just going through the battery of opponents that would be the credible way to, to move up steadily. Um, you know, and, and, and that that's the fight game. It's the element. It is, you know. Hey, it's not it's not the cleanest whistle in the, in the, in the room, but, hey, it works. It has worked, and it continues to work. Uh, lastly, Jesse says, hey, Billy, I heard that Kovalev <laughs> – he says, I heard that Kovalev has a smoking and drinking problem. Do you believe that? Uh, do you believe that based on his last fight? Uh, is he an arrogant fighter? Um, I don't know if he's got a smoking and drinking problem. Uh, you know, I, 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 he did say, uh, is he arrogant? To a degree, I would I would agree with that. Um, I, I think that there is a language barrier. So, you know, his arrogance... Uh, um, you know, isn't arrogant like like uh, Ward Andre Ward to me is an ag- ar- arrogant uh, sob. I know he says he's sog, but uh, uh, I refer to him as sob. But the, but I, I don't know. As far as the smoking and drinking problem, I I have no idea about that. But the one thing I will say is that uh, he made a comment uh, about some of his reasons why he got rid of John David Jackson as a trainer. Now, John David Jackson had said that he, he quit. Uh, you know, he was disappointed in Kovalev because he quit. And, and he felt that he just, you know, didn't have the onions, uh, so to speak, to continue. And, Sal, you said the same thing. And I agree. I, I think Kovalev quit that fight. I think He, he was quit looking that for fight. He got banged in the belly. And he said that's it. He, he looked for a way to end that fight soon because this was not the same Kovalev that we saw that almost beat Andre Ward the first fight. And I, believe me. 
I could tell when a fighter had enough. He was looking for a way out of that fight that night. There's no question. And, uh, you know, I, 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 like you, I've lost uh, a lot of respect. A for, lot of respect. For, for Kovalev. Um, but the one thing that he said, which makes me even more uh, less respectful of him, uh, is the fact that he, uh, he said the reason why I got he – was, he was, at least he wasn't talking smack. And John David Jackson never talked smack, and he kind of did uh, about Kovalev. But um, what, what Kovalev said was he wasn't learning anything from John David Jackson anymore. And I found that an interesting statement, Sal, and here's the reason why. When you reach that level, um, are you really being taught new things? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I would think when you reach the level of, uh, as a champion, and many regarded him as the undisputed light heavyweight champion, uh, was beating everybody in, until he faced Ward. Um, I, I mean, are you looking to learn new things? I, I'm thinking more... At least from my perspective, and and you know maybe you can shed some light on it. But at least from my perspective, it seems like when you get to that level, what you're looking for in a trainer is you know continuity. So really, the same trainer should be with you, and you're looking at fine tuning certain things, or or putting together game plans and working on the execution of a game plan. If you're still in a position where you're learning things. I would be a little nervous at that stage of your career. I, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, I, this is something that you know more than I. What, what's what's your thoughts on that statement that he wasn't learning anything from John David Jackson? You know, at that level and at that stage, as you suggest, a fighter is pretty much a complete fighter. There are things that trainers can utilize and recognize to enhance what you're doing and negate what you're not doing. That's the coaching end of it. That's the that's the professional assessment of what you see you can get from a fighter. Well, you're doing this. I, I think maybe just look about delivering it this way or step aside and watch that right hand here. And, you know, this is where you're getting caught there. You point things out. It's like, you know, like 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 I said, and I, I, I hate to refer back. I got trained by some of the world-class best trainers in the world, including Lou Duva, um, uh, uh, Ali Stoltz, who was a contender back in the day, um, Don Turner, who who I loved, and to this day I'll say is one of the greatest trainers ever, and uh, uh, Johnny Torres, and one of my, I, I loved them, was Richie Giacchetti. These guys honed in, and I took a little bit from what they were showing me, and I developed my own style. And if I was with one of those guys, they would just utilize and, and a good trainer will say, hey, they'll enhance this. They'll recognize what you need to, to work on and, and everything else. But at that stage, you, you, you cultivate, you have evolved as your own style. They'll look at what your handicap might be or what you're uh, uh, maybe uh, doing that's giving you uh, more of an opportunity that you're missing. Uh, but they're not going to – it's, it's – you're, you're fused. You're fused as a fighter. They're just going to help you recognize things that can enhance your ability to uh, to further uh, negate some punches and also to deliver your own. You know, Coach just put it uh, very well in the chat room up on BillyCBoxing.com. He says, trainers should be like mechanics. Only fix what's broken. Forget right. about the wash and wax. And and you know what? I, like I, I agree with that. That's good. Great statement, Coach. You're 100% right. And that's what trainers usually do. A good trainer at that stage, at that level. 
Yeah. Um, one last uh, email here I want to read. Uh, we have a couple more emails, but one last email I want to read before we take a break and get uh, John Oakes on, the, the new author of the book I've been talking about, a uh, trilogy of books I, I was talking about. Um, this one's also from Jesse. And he sent me a video uh, on uh, uh, the opinions of boxing for, former world champion and boxing Hall of Famer Carlos Palomino. And oh, oh, uh, wow. it was a really cool little clip. Uh, he says, Billy, can you watch this video? Uh, what Carlos Palomino says that boxers shouldn't get tired, I agree with. Today they shouldn't, but they do because they don't fight enough and train correctly. If top boxers fight about six times a year, that is that equivalent to a football player's punishment in one year? You know, it all depends on how many hits they take. But what Carlos Palomino said, and by the way, the guy was uh, working out and hitting a bag. He's talking to the guy interviewing him. And he's hitting a bag. He's not even looking at it, you know. And and it was great. He was going up and down bag that you know the double sided uh, uh, speed bag that he was hitting uh, or uh, training bag that, that he was hitting. And um, uh, he he said the biggest thing that tires fighters out today, Sal, is when they miss a punch. And you know, I was thinking about that, and I said to myself, Yeah, that's right. And that falls into play with exactly what we've been talking about for several years on this show that we don't have good trainers, teachers. We have rah-rah men. So if a fighter's not being taught correctly and to throw a punch, land the punch, so you throw the punch when you know you're going to land it, you're going to miss more often. And if you're going to miss more often, you're going to get tired faster, regardless of the, the, the uh, you know, uh, preparation that you make uh, you know, prior to uh, how many rounds you fight, how many miles you run, et cetera, et cetera. What do you think about uh, Carlos Palomino's uh, opinion uh, that a fighter actually gets tired faster when they miss punches? Well, the only way I could validate or see that being a, the, one of the reasons, I think there's a multitude of reasons why a fighter might get tired faster. It's just because they're not training properly. But you're going to miss a shot. You're going to miss punches. And you're gonna have to double up your punch count to land a punch. So you know you miss one, you got to try two more times to land. Um, so maybe it's the exertion of uh, multiple punches. If you're not hitting one, your odds are what one in three. You got to throw three punches to hit one. Who, who knows? That's where you get tired. Um, but you know, if a fighter enters the ring of battle, condition to throw and to punch from bell to bell, uh, which is possible. I mean. It's conditioning. You've got to do your road work. You've got to do your bad work, bag work. Your body remembers. You fight like you train. You train like you fight. I mean, I'm I'm old school, and let me tell you, you can look at any one of my fights. I punch belt to belt for for a ten round fight or three rounds. It, it, your conditioning. You do your sprints. You do your interval running. You do your distance running. You do your fart lick, which is like interval. You do you do what you can. You do the bag work. You do on the heavy bag. You, you punch in spurts. You do this. You do that. So missing a punch, I don't think, is necessarily the cause of why fighters are fatigued today. I'm sorry, Carlos. I, I respect you. You're a world champ. You're great. It could be a contributory factor. Because, you know, now if you're going to have to win a fight or punch, you, if you miss two shots, you got to throw four more to try and average up your, your average of misses. So, so maybe that's what he meant by that. You're just throwing more punches to land. Um, uh, but still, you know what? There's a lot of reasons other than that reason alone I, of why fighters are not as well conditioned today. I, and what you always hint to, Bill, 
it's a lot because a lot of the fighters no longer remain in the game today. They I, don't pass down those secrets. They don't pass down those those training tips. They don't pass down what made them great as much as they used to do in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and even 70s that, that we all benefited from. I think that, uh, and Sal, uh, uh, I appreciate that. We're going to be uh, taking a break, and uh, we're going to be bringing on the author, so we're going to kick you to the curb for a few minutes and then uh, get you back a little bit later. But uh, Carlos Palomino, I, I agree with what he said. He also said that getting hit, um, doesn't tire you out, which I found, uh, um, you know, kind of uh, amazing. And, uh, you know, Coach brings up a, a, another point in the chat room. He says, what about body shots? And body shots definitely tire you out. But I, I, I kind of agree with him in a sense. Uh, I agree with Sal, of course, uh, but I also agree with uh, what Carlos was saying because I've heard that before from trainers that say, you know, if you miss a punch, it actually takes more energy out of you uh, than when you connect. Uh, so I think he was just reiterating that. But uh, anyway, listen, we're going to take a short break. Uh, when we come back, we're scheduled to have John Oakes uh, join us. He's the author of a new trilogy uh, of books uh, about uh, Jack Hurley, uh, who was a, uh, uh, a manager and promoter in the sport of boxing for over 60 years. Uh, great set of books that I uh, recommend. So we're going to be getting the author on so he could tell us all about that. So uh, uh, we're going to kick Sal to the curb for a few minutes and then we'll come back. we got some more emails to read and uh, we'll give you a little uh, uh, update on the fights that are scheduled, uh, big fights that are scheduled for this weekend uh, that we will be uh, talking about tomorrow. Uh, so uh, don't go nowhere. Uh, we will uh, uh, be back here uh, in about... Uh, I don't know. I'm going to take a stab and say uh, that we're going to be back uh, in two minutes. So uh, uh, don't uh, don't go nowhere. Billy C will be right back. Part of the Billy C Boxing Network. Hey, fight fans. Check out KOFantasyBoxing.com. KO Fantasy Boxing is boxing's only trademarked fantasy game. Check it out. www.kofantasyboxing.com. Select your own gym, your own fighters. Track them through a season that can last from three months to a year, depending upon which league you join. You got to check this out, man. www.kofantasyboxing.com. Join it today. Again, www.kofantasyboxing.com. And tell them Billy C sent you. Broadcasting in all corners of the globe on the web and radio. He would scoff at a stretch of that man, I would think. You're listening to Talkin' Boxing with Billy C. From upstate New York in the good old U.S. of A. Boxing is here to stay because we are here to stay. The best two hours of boxing talk on the airwaves. The one, the only, Don King. Makes me feel good, Billy, to have you, the number one show in the country, talking boxing with Billy. So I invite each and every American that's listening to this great show to tune in. This, we want you to be there with Billy and me. Check out BillyCBoxing.com now or feel the wrath of the mighty mustache. Oh, that hurts. Why are you doing that to my face? I hate you. I hate you. That's BillyCBoxing.com. Consider this your warning. Now back to Billy C. Interact with the show at BillyCBoxing.com.
And we're, you know, we're back. You're listening and watching The Billy C Show. Glad you could be with us today. And uh, speaking of being with us, joining us right now, I've been talking about this uh, trilogy of books, trilogy of books, I should say, uh, during today's show. Uh, it's a three-volume set on manager and promoter Jack Hurley. And joining us right now is the author of these three books, John Oaks. John, uh, I appreciate you uh, joining us today. Now, we don't have your video, John. Uh, we just got your photo. So, I mean, if you need to click uh, something what, to get that. What can I uh, do to make my video active, I wonder? Well, we won't worry about it if, uh, if if you don't have your camera turned on. No problem. People can still, still see your uh your your mug with the with the photo, but I appreciate you getting up early uh, to uh, join us today. I know it's uh, real early in the morning out west, but um, great uh, trilogy you have on uh, promoter and manager Jack Hurley. Um, I, first of all, give our listeners and viewers an idea of who Jack Hurley was. Well, Jack Hurley was a. Fight manager and a promoter whose career spanned the entire, uh, what I would consider to be the golden age of boxing. That would be between uh, World War One and uh, that would be the D Jack Dempsey era through the George Foreman era. Uh, that would be up to the Vietnam War, and uh, he his story is basically the story of boxing during those years so uh, I grew up following Jack Hurley in the newspaper uh, during the course of his management of his last fighter Boone Kirkman and I gradually uh, because I was an avid reader of the newspaper I gradually became familiar with uh, his career and uh, when I had extra time uh, after retiring, I decided I wanted to follow that career and to, at the same time, trace the, the history of boxing. Uh, so, uh, it, it, the boxing from uh, 19, in 1917, that's about 100 years ago, and that's when Jack Hurley started managing. Boxing was in its, still really in its infancy. And uh, Jack Hurley came up at a time in Fargo, North Dakota, when boxing was technically illegal, or at least prize fighting was technically illegal. Uh, and he, his career matured with Billy Patrol in, uh, in New York at just the time when uh, Jack Dempsey and uh, Gene Tunney were, were uh filling the year of the sports pages with uh, uh, boxing and boxing had come out of the, the dark the back rooms and gone into the big arenas and stadiums and then uh, it continued uh, after that in the uh, 1930s when Hurley when Billy Patrol retired and then Hurley moved to Chicago and uh, became the matchmaker at the Chicago Stadium, which at the time was the largest indoor sports facility in the country. And uh, after television came in and uh, the mob moved in, 
and moved and uh, moved him out of the Chicago Stadium. He moved to Seattle, and uh, when uh, television took a temporary uh, respite uh, during the '60s, after uh, it had been overexposed uh, on the Gillette and the Paps Blue Ribbon programs, there was a little blossoming in Seattle, and uh, Hurley started promoting again and. Uh, and uh, that's when I came in and started to follow him in his promotion of Boone Kirkman. So what, you're, what you have then is the history of television from, uh, or the history of boxing, uh, taking it from the period when it was just in the back rooms and then it, to the period that it went to the big arenas where live boxing was the way that uh, people saw fights and then into the TV era. So uh, he was involved in all of those eras. He, he in a sense, was uh, involved in the sport for over 60 years, which is uh, uh, pretty impressive. I, I, one thing that stuck out for me is, uh, you know, you consider him, or, and not just you, but other people consider him uh, the only honest promoter ever to be involved in the sport. Tell us about that. Well, the name, the title of the book is The One is Jack Hurley, and that uh, derives from Damon Runyon's famous quote, uh, I know of uh, only two honest managers in boxing. The one is Jack Hurley, and I can't remember the name of the other. Uh, others... Uh, Others like uh, Dan Parker, who was kind of a muckraker for the New York Daily Mirror, uh, echoed uh, uh, Runyon's quotes uh, and said that uh, most of the boxing managers he, know, he knew would steal candy from babies, but Hurley was something different. Uh, he had a code. He came up, his model, after his father died in a tragic uh railroad accident at when Hurley was 12 years old was Billy McCarney. And Billy McCarney uh, was uh, an affable Irishman, uh, a kind of an odd, uh, a strange person in boxing because he uh, was a college graduate and he came to Fargo, North Dakota when Hurley was 15 years old and uh, he was managing Luther McCarty, who had just won the uh, heavyweight, the white heavyweight championship, uh, the white hope heavyweight championship. And Hurley, who had just lost his father, kind of latched on to uh, Billy McCarney as a model. He met him. Um, Luther McCarty was there uh, uh, fighting an exhibition in, uh, after he'd won the title from uh, Arthur Pelkey in 1913 and uh, Hurley was introduced to McCarney there as a kid he'd been hanging around the gyms in Fargo and Billy McCarney became his model and uh, McCarney was uh, a, a, both a teacher and a manager and a promoter and uh, Hurley considered him to be a real professional and uh, so he modeled him both as a substitute father and as a uh, a boxing man and McCarney was honest uh, 
and uh, later, 10 years later, when Hurley, or 12 years later, when Hurley started managing and brought uh, Billy Patrol to New York for the first time, uh, McCarney had an office in uh, New York, and uh, Hurley worked in that office, and uh, as a consequence, when he uh, went to New York, he did not have to uh, enlist the, the it was a custom in New York that if you came from out of town and and uh, uh, were trying to introduce a fighter from out of town, that you had to uh, enlist the help of a New New York manager. And Hurley, in essence, was able to bypass this through the efforts of Billy McCarney. And uh, in essence, what that meant was that uh, he he was totally an independent man. Uh, he wasn't tied to, uh, owning Madden, who was a mobster who ended up, who usually ended up owning a piece of any fighter that came into New York, at least any major fighter. So he had a, a, a boost from Billy McCarney that, uh, that allowed him to, to start off on the straight and narrow and then to continue that way throughout his career. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm running out of uh, time here, um, John, but I wanted to get your thoughts on the impact that you feel from your from all the research that you did to, to write these books. What impact do you feel that uh, Hurley made uh, on the sport of boxing? And do you still see that impact today with today's version of the sport? Well, that's a many-faceted question. I have to kind of work it through. Uh, well, we can. Uh, you know what? Don't don't worry about that question because I, I, you know, I don't want you to lose too much uh, time on that one. But I'm sorry. Um, I, no, no, the other thing I want to say is, uh, you know, some of the some of the things that you did when you laid out this book and wrote it uh, was one. You wrote the book for not only boxing fans you 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 wrote it also for uh, a fan of history and you tied boxing into that tell us why you did that and uh how it would be beneficial for a reader that might not be a diehard boxing fan to read your uh, trilogy well i did it for the very reason that you said i wanted people to to uh learn about boxing learn about history uh I, uh, when I started writing this project, I thought it was just going to be about Jack Curley, but uh, his career was so multifaceted. Uh, he was a boxing manager, a trainer, a promoter, and if I was going to tell the whole story, uh, I had to go back and tell the story about uh, each one of his promotions, and that leads into talking about each one of the uh, the fighters that were fighting his promotions, whether they were his fighter or, or, or the opposing fighters. Uh, and uh, that led me to, if you're going to really understand what's happening in those promotions, you need to know what the economic uh, uh, concerns of the time are, because that's part of what a promoter faces. So it kind of grew from the seed of Jack Hurley's life 
and kept expanding and expanding and expanding. And pretty soon I'm talking about World War One and the Depression and World War Two and tying it into everything. So uh, it, it kind of uh, I, I'm kind of a, a completist that goes way back into the beginning of things. I, I have interest in like uh, jazz music and I always and it's the same thing with that. It's just the way my personality uh, is driven. So uh, it was the seed of Jack Hurley and trying to tell the full story that kind of blossomed into telling the story of boxing in the United States and, and, and sports in the United States. Well, it's you know, the area, the era of live boxing when, when uh, the way a promoter made a living was filling seats, putting seat bottoms in the seats and, and uh, uh, before television. You know, it was a, a wonderful era. I mean, uh, if you were in a small town, uh, the world just came to you. Barnstorm, barnstorming preachers, actors, vaudevillians, wrestlers, pool players, they all came to you. And uh, uh, so I, I wanted to tell that, that story of, uh, of when, when boxing and all other sports, when people went to see fights, they didn't push a button and watch television they actually had to be there right that's when that's when promoters actually promoted you know i i always uh, refer back to uh, the bare knuckle era when it wasn't even legal for boxing but yet they would still have 10,000 people show up they used to sell tickets without a date a location uh, 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 you know who was fighting and they'd still have 10,000 people there you know which i thought was amazing and you certainly did a complete uh set here i i have the books uh uh, displayed here on our set, and I, there's no room. I mean, you did such a great job uh, uh, doing these. One last thing I wanted to ask you was, um, you know, you, you wrote the book uh, with something in mind where a reader, which I thought was pretty, uh, pretty intelligent, uh, you, 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 wrote, you wrote the trilogy. Let me rephrase it. You wrote the trilogy based on the fact that someone didn't necessarily have to read the first one first and the second one second and the third one third although that's your intent but the way the books are written is somebody could pick up the second uh ver the second volume or or even the third volume and get enough out of it tell us why you did that well you know three books uh, 1750 or 1800 pages and uh, almost 1100 pictures three books is a lot for a reader to digest and uh so if I'm, I, I really expect the readers to 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 uh, be be attracted to uh, the the demo the, the area that they that they're interested in uh, the the the, demo the the regional area that they're listed in. The first book covers uh, uh, Fargo and Duluth from the period of 1897 to 1927, and then, or, or, uh, and then also goes into New York until 1934. So it's mostly people that are, that uh, uh, have an interest in uh, the Midwest uh, that that would be interested in that. And then the second book uh, covers Hurley's time in Chicago from 1934 to 1949. And then the final book is uh, his time in Seattle from 1950 to 1972. So uh, that 
I tried to break it down to make it manageable for a reader. And then if he was attracted by uh, the, the part that he thought he was most interested in, he might then want to go and pick up the other two volumes. Plus, I also broke it up uh, chapter by chapter and, and tried to, to, to uh, make it so that a, a reader could treat each chapter as a short story. Uh, I have uh, vignettes at the beginning, uh, which are uh, an intro to the uh, chapter where oftentimes Hurley uh, is talking or else people who knew Hurley. And I always tried to end it with a little bit of, a, of a, uh, an ending to, to top it off rather than to, so that you could almost end it and then just pick it up later on rather than uh, just making it a continuous story where you had to read the whole thing. Well, it's certainly uh, 100% complete. There's no question about that. Where can uh, my viewers and listeners get uh, all three books? Well, there's uh, two versions of, uh, of each volume uh, from Amazon.com. And if you just call up the Amazon page and type in Oaks, O-C-H-S, and then Hurley, uh, the three books come up first. Uh, and uh, they're they're selling for uh, the first volume is uh, thirty nine ninety five. The second volume is twenty nine ninety five, and the uh, third volume is thirty five ninety five on Amazon. And that is as a soft cover. Uh, I am selling directly uh, the the uh, three volumes as hard covers, and uh, the cost would be ten dollars more than the. Uh, than the Amazon cost, and uh, you can reach me at my email, John T. Oaks at Comcast.net. That's J O H N T O C H S at Comcast.net. John, uh, great job uh, with the uh, trilogy, and uh, we wish you all the best uh, with that, and, and keep us posted. Uh, as time goes on, how you doing with the books and uh, if you have any other projects that come our way. Okay, all right. All right thank John. you much, Billy. Hey. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. And I appreciate you again. I, I want to thank you for, for getting up so early. I know it's uh, three hours earlier on the West Coast, and, and I certainly appreciate that, my man. Okay, thank you. All right, take care. That's uh, yep. John Oaks. Uh, get yourself a copy. Like he said, you can go uh, to Amazon uh, and get it. Just search... Uh, uh, Hurley and Oaks, that's O-C-H-S, uh, or O-C-H-S and then Hurley, and uh, pick up a copy. There's uh, a great uh, historical perspective of uh, Jack Hurley, and uh, when we say complete, as you can see, uh, the camera shot here, uh, it is complete. It fills up uh, our whole uh, uh, set here, so uh, uh, definitely uh, get yourself uh, a copy now uh, I am going to take a short little break here and when I come back we got a couple of more emails to read and uh, we got uh, the return of Sal Rocky Senecola and he's probably still fuming uh, over the uh, Palomino thing eh, maybe not I don't know we'll be back in two Billy C will be right back part of the Billy C Boxing Network check out BillyCBoxing.com now or feel the wrath of the mighty mustache. Oh, that hurts. Why are you doing that to my face? I hate you. I hate you. That's BillyCBoxing.com. Consider this your warning. Now back to Billy 
Radio.com. And we're back. You're listening and watching the Billy C Show. Glad you could be with us. And uh, uh, joining me uh, again is uh, my man, uh, Sal Rocky Senecola. And uh, Sal, we, we got a couple of more emails to read. Uh, let's okay. see. Yeah, we got two more. Uh, this one's from uh, my man, Joel. He says, uh, I know it's been discussed enough, but I wanted to give my two cents on Saturday night's scoring debacle. Uh, I strongly feel that Nevada and Golden Boy, whoever oversees the political boxing, uh, wanted and expected Canelo to win. I strongly feel, too, that if Canelo had won, uh, let's say a 9-3, to an 8-4, to four, or even a 7-5 to five fight, the judges would have absolutely scored it correctly. I just think that the politics of boxing didn't want Canelo to have another L on his record simply because he's a megastar in the sport, and another loss would have potentially hurt his career, at least I think. I said to my friend Saturday night who was uh, overwatching that even if Triple G convincingly wins, expect some wacky scoring, and that's exactly what uh, happened. Yeah, some rounds were close. I won't deny that, but it also seems no one expected a 35-year-old who fought a close fight with Danny Jacobs was going to do as well as he did. I do feel Triple G doesn't need to do a rematch, as you said, uh, and we all know who won. Again... This is my opinion, but curious on you and Sal's thoughts uh, about what I said. Um, I, you know, I think that the powers, I, I agree. I think that the powers that be wanted Canelo. But, and yes, we had a wacky score. We all talked about it. But, you know, it is what it is because the close fight, basically what happened with Adelie Bird's scorecard is that any close round, or a round that she even thought was close, she leaned towards Canelo and ultimately ended up with that scorecard. You know, to, to say the, that I agree with, but to say that if Canelo had, uh, you know, won the fight 9-3, to 8-4, you know, just remember that the scorecards are, ta you know, uh, handed in after each round. So if they're going to give, the only way that a fight could be... <clears throat> you know, end up the way this one did is that if a judge takes and any close round gives it to one guy or even if it's not that close, gives it to that other guy because every round they're handed in the card. It's not like they can not They can go back and, and change something around. So I, I think in this case, she clearly was favoring Canelo no matter what he did. And um, that uh, the end result is what we got. I mean, what, can you add anything to that? Well, I think the email was uh, dead on, and and I I understand exactly, and I uh, agree exactly to what he was suggesting and saying. And Billy, I think you are correct too. But I, I now the score that she submitted doesn't that reflect that that uh, she saw Canelo winning eight out of the twelve rounds? Is that what it did? No, more than that. No, she scored one eighteen, one eighteen. I yeah. had at one sixteen, one twelve. That's eight rounds to four. And so she, so this. she had a ten the, rounds to two, and you know what? That again, that is just that's out of the that's out of the solar system. That never you you would have to you know that was definitely there was something going on there, Billy. Let's call a spade a spade. That did not happen. That fight was not that fight that we all saw. Okay, that the millions of saw. Well, Even if you lean, which I did, I leaned in favor in certain rounds, and I gave them to Canelo. 
And I still had the 116 to, to uh, 112, or whatever it might have been. There were a lot of clo- there were a lot of close rounds. I mean, yeah. you know, but but at the end of the night, uh, when you re- when you when you're sitting there ready to uh, take the pencil to paper and score the fight, uh, score the round, and it was a close round. At least for me, what determines that round? Larry said it best. Uh, he said, you know, if you have one fighter that landed a couple of hard shots, and then the other fighter is landing jab after jab and a little less hard shots, but he's landing jab after jab, and he's controlling the action, that fighter has to get the nod. I, I mean, I, that's the way I, I score. Agree. That's the way you score. That's the way Larry scores. That's the way Harold Letterman scored. You know, so I, I think that, again, the outrage here was the fact that her scorecard was so out of whack with everyone else's. Again, if she scored the fight 115-113 or even 116-112 for Canelo, I don't think we have the outrage that we had, you know? So, uh, anyway, we got another email. This one's from uh, my man, uh, Bill, and he says, uh, Hey, Billy C., I was just catching up on the latest going-ons in the Huey Fury camp prior to his fight with Joseph Parker this weekend when I noticed another article on the same page. This is what it said. William Monroe Jr. is taking legal action after he was punched and kicked by Billy Joe Saunders' son, Stevie, who's seven years old, at Friday's weigh-in for the WBO Middleweight Championship. He said, if I'm not compensated for being punched and kicked by Saunders' son, I'm going to sue. I carry myself in a dignified manner, and they have been malicious to me and my team. He says, uh, Bill says, uh, I don't know if you saw it or not, Billy, but it was one of the, at one of the fight promotions, and Billy Joe Saunders' tiny little son, and he really was just a tiny kid, ran over. Uh, towards Monroe and sort of punched him and kicked him. I don't even think uh, he hardly made contact, and it certainly couldn't have hurt Monroe. Anyway, as you see, he's threatening to sue Saunders uh, unless he gets compensated with lots of money. I guess he didn't get paid enough for the fight. What a baby. Uh, And it's from my man, uh, Willie. Um, You know, I I did see. I saw the footage and everything. I didn't see that. Well, he kicked him in the onions, man. He kicked him right right in the soft spot, you know, and he runs up. And you know you could look at it two different ways, you know. Was I would it, was it, was it, was it, well, was it, was it part of promotion? Was it part of trying to get? It? Yeah, it was. Was it a little comical? Yeah, but you know, at the end of the day, first of all, if you're going to bring your kid to a uh, a a press conference, or or in this case, it was the weigh-in, I think. Um, you know, I, I think you do. I think Willie Monroe has a point. I don't know about suing, but I think he's got a point that you know you got to handle yourself in a professional manner. And the truth of the matter is, is that a lot of these uh, uh, press conferences and or weigh-ins, you know, they get to be such smokescreen BS that, you know, it's like WWE. Coach has said it many, many times uh, over the years in the chat room. You know, uh, boxing is, is like WWE. When when are they going to take and, and start, uh, you know, breaking uh, chairs over each other's heads? I mean, uh, I, I, I agree. I hate to say it. And, you know... And, and I'm not I'm certainly not saying he deserves money, but I agree with Willie Monroe. I think that uh, Billy Joe Saunders son uh, should not have been allowed to get that close uh, to Willie Monroe. I, I'm sorry. I, I, I agree to a sense that uh, it was a little uh, it was a little much BS. Well, I agree, too, Bill. I mean, this kid had no business doing what he did. If he had the parental guidance, he would have had the proper manners to know you don't do those kind of things. And, you know, if I was going to bring my son to a weigh-in, to a press conference, and he was – how old was this kid, Bill? Seven. 
Seven. Okay. Seven, you have at least the 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 uh, wherewithal to understand the difference between right or wrong, good or bad to a degree. And you know how you say, hey, son, I'll bring you to this event, to this weigh-in. You're here to support daddy, at, but you got to listen. You got to stay right by me. You can't do anything or say anything right now. We're just doing – you know, you give some coaching to your son, whatever it is. You don't say, hey, go over there, kick him in a yang-yang or whatever <laughs> and uh, be a little terror that you are. Yeah. And uh, you don't do that, Bill. No. The kid should have never been there. No. <laughs> this is grown-up business. I know. Well, that, this is why we wonder why nobody takes it serious anymore. You know, when you well, got that. Say, you know, yeah. I know. I know. It's, and it's, you know what? You, 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 yeah. I think there should be an official apology uh, from Saunders' camp, and he should go over there and offer, hey, look, I'm really sorry. And, uh, you know, maybe we, we, we thought we were going to sell more tickets or whatever it was. Uh, my son wants to also apologize. I'm sorry. Yeah, and, and, he wanted know, to apologize. He and, meant he didn't mean to kick you in the nuts. He meant to kick no, you in the he, knee. Sorry, man. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, I mean that's how kids apologize no, I nowadays. Know, I, know, I, I got I my two boys too. They don't say I'm very sorry. No, they I'm go sorry. like this. Yeah, sorry. The, Billy Joe Sonner was to say, "Hey, son, uh, go, go over there and and uh, and and tell Willie you're sorry." And he would go over, uh, "Hey, Willie, I'm sorry." Hey, you know, it's like it's like, "Hey, uh, say good night, Irene. Good night, Irene." You know, but uh, but anyway, <laughs> you're right. A um, couple wow. of fights this weekend on HBO. Uh, Oscar Valdez against uh, Genesis Cervana uh, uh, for the uh, WBO featherweight title that uh, Valdez has. Uh, we will. Uh, that's actually uh, on. Uh, I, I misspoke before. I, I said it was on uh, uh, HBO. It's actually on uh, ESPN. So uh, I was wrong uh, about that. And also on that card, uh, Zerto Ramirez against Jesse Hart in the super middleweight division. Also for a title, Ramirez is WBO super middleweight title. Um, you know, we'll be talking about these two fights uh, tomorrow. Also, what's available uh, on uh, pay-per-view through the internet is Joseph Parger and Huey Fury. I, I believe uh, YouTube pay-per-view will uh, offer that one. Uh, that's uh, Saturday uh, at uh, 3 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, and then also on Saturday on HBO, uh, we have the uh, Jorge Linares fight against Luke Campbell. And, you know, no offense to Jorge Linares or Luke Campbell. Um, HBO is missing a boat, man. They're missing some some decent fights. I mean, I'm not saying that that won't be a competitive fight, but that's certainly not. Yes, it's a title fight. It's for the WBA lightweight title, but it's certainly not what I've become used to seeing on HBO when it, com when it comes to the matchups, forget the titles. Um, I think it's less than stellar uh, uh, matchup. Uh, what's your quick thoughts? Yeah, I agree. I agree. Like I said, you know, to have a weak card presented to the, to the public is, is, uh, is not, it's not attractive. That's why it's, it's, that's why it's not a pay-per-view. It's the same thing we said, you know, they should be a little smarter when they align fights, when they make these fights, and they want to make them a showcase fight. You know, how do you do that? Like I said earlier, you know, when you go see a big mega main event fight like we saw last weekend uh, with Canelo Alvarez and Triple G, well, everyone's going for that fight. It doesn't matter what the undercard is uh, uh, to a degree. But how had they thought about it? And said, "Hey, we want to put more horsepower, more juice into this card. Let's showcase uh, uh, um, David Lemieux. Let's do this. Let's do that. Let's get other contenders that might vie for the same title one day. You know, that would have been a hell of a catalyst, a hell of a way to to, to showcase a mega card. 
Um, but you know, they 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 put some of these fights together today, Bill. I I don't know why, how, where, and when, but they uh, they do not put the the exercise or the formulas together that we we saw in yesteryear. No, what 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 we have today is unfortunately the people that are making the decisions, the execs, the suits, if you will, at these networks, they, they don't know the sport. They, they look at the records. They see an impressive record. They see a title, and they go, okay, this must be a good a good fight. You know, and, and that's the problem. It's really not any, any kind of rocket science. The simple fact that we have a sport, professional boxing, that allows non-boxing people to run it, and then the simple fact that there are so few true boxing fans out there that now the people that make those decisions, they're, they're put, they, they make a decision for sports programming, in my opinion, based on a lot of what they like. You know, and that's why boxing is, is sinking. The Internet saved boxing uh, to a degree because it opened up those doors. Like for the Joseph Parker-Huey uh, Fury fight uh, this weekend, you know, a lot of people are going to be able to watch it on a stream if you like to watch fights on a stream. But uh, anyway, it is what it is, you know. It is what it is. It, tell, you know, educate the, the, the fans and the public out there a little bit too. When they put a fight card together to make it a bona fide, realistic, logistic fight card, they have to make up a, that, that that's accumulation of rounds. You have to have a certain amount of rounds on a fight card. So that means they got to look for their championship. They got to look for a semi windup. They got to look for a preliminary. They got to look. So that that also comes into play. Where are they going to put and where are they going to fit the pieces to have the amount of rounds that's going to be a valid card? Correct. Oh, of course. But but Absolutely. I'm talking. But but on those uh, TV cards, those are all ready to main events. The the, yeah. the the commission requires X amount of rounds. Yes, but you know they they're filled in with the undercard. But uh, I'm, yes. my point my point is just. Simply the TV execs, you know, you could have a fight between a guy that's got a record of 25 and 8 against another guy that's got a record of 32 and 9, and it would be a great fight, a fight of the year, and they won't even consider it because both of them have, uh, you know, 8 and 9 losses respectively. So uh, that that was my point. It, they don't know the sport. They, You know, this is they why all of a sudden you get a guy, he comes in from, uh, you know, uh, another country that nobody, even yeah. myself, hasn't heard of. He's got a twenty-five and one record, and they're putting him on because they go, "Ooh, twenty-five and one. He's he must be good, you know." And he and he fought nobody, you know. But uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah. go ahead. Okay, it would be like today. Sorry, thank you for recognizing my hand. Uh, putting a Jake Lamada in in a big fight where uh, he had nine losses already. Of what do you have? A total of eighteen losses. I mean, they're gonna think, "Well, he he's the B side. Let's do this." And, you know, forget about it. Yeah. They, how do you, he wouldn't how, survive it today. How do you how do you how do you not put a guy? Yes, he had 19 losses, but how do you not put him on? You know, but uh, anyway, I know, that's what I'm saying. They don't know the game. No, that's that's the they whole don't point. know the sport. No, that's the whole point. On this day, September 21st in 1948, a guy we mentioned today, Marcel Serdan, knocks out Tony Zale in the 12th round to win the world middleweight title, and that took place in Jersey City, New Jersey. Marcel Sardin was uh, a really good fighter. It's unfortunate that uh, not only his career, but his life was uh, uh, cut short. On this day in 1985, Michael Spinks, the Spinks Jinx, wins a 15-round decision over Larry Holmes to win wow. the IBF World Heavyweight title. It took place in Vegas. On this day in 1985, Bernard Benton wins a 12-round decision 
over Alfonso Ratliff to win the WBC World Cruiserweight title took place in Vegas. On this day in 1974, Perico Fernandez wins a 15-round decision over Lion Furayama to win the vacant WBC World Junior Welterweight title that took place in Rome. And finally, on this day, September 21st in 1955, the late great Rocky Marciano knocks out Archie Moore in the ninth round to retain his world heavyweight title, and that took place at Yankee Stadium in the Bronx. This would wow. be Rocky's last professional fight. He retired at 49-0 and with 43 knockouts, and he was elected into the International Boxing Hall of Fame in 1990. And by the way, just for the record, the 49-0 and record has not been broken because it was made specifically for the heavyweight division. So uh, keep that in mind. That's just my opinion. Hey, tomorrow, on tomorrow's show, we will be doing uh, a breakdown and uh, giving you our predictions on the major fights scheduled for this coming weekend. But until then, make sure you tune in tomorrow morning. Same bat time, same bat channel. Until then, ciao, baby.